When God is not speaking, it's dreadfully hard for us to know what God wants us to do. When God is not speaking, understanding the meaning of our lives and experiences is often beyond our grasp. When God is not speaking, we often fill the void with our own best guesses. When Samuel led the people of Israel, the word of God was never far from them. We recall back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, the prophets of Israel have told us the following, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Samuel had been both a judge and a prophet, and he had been chosen by God to speak God's words to his people and to lead them. Now Samuel's family had not been chosen, only Samuel himself, and that is one of the significant differences between judges and kings. Kings inherit their throne by birth. Judges were chosen by God one at a time. Kings ruled over entire nations. Judges often served God in smaller localized regions. Ideally, one king would rule at a time. Oftentimes, though, several judges were leading at the same time in different parts of Israel. So the Israelites, and we've been studying this in 1 Samuel, they had rejected the entire concept of judges when they asked for a king. But more than that, in asking for a king, they also separated the role of prophet from the role of leader. From that point on, the leadership would be determined by biology, by whose family you were a part of. Now, God would not stop choosing individuals to speak to his people, but they would no longer be leaders. These individuals would be called prophets, but no longer leaders. The prophets would speak to the kings, but they would not speak as leaders. And this is what God meant when he said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, They've not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And asking for a king, they were asking God to speak to them less. The hope of Israel is that God would be with their king, of course, and that God would uphold their king's decisions. However, they found out very quickly that God had made no such guarantee. As we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, when Saul disobeyed God, God separated himself from Saul. These were the words God sent Samuel to say. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In the passage we're considering today, we might observe that Israel was only then beginning to realize the limitation of having a king, particularly when kings choose to live in opposition to the commands of God. God had sent his spirit on Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. In that passage, we saw together 
that Saul prophesied as a sign to him that God had indeed chosen him to be king. But the rest of the story reveals that, though God does gift Saul with this gift twice, he was no prophet. He became incapacitated by the Spirit of God when it came on him. He almost lost his mind. He could do nothing. And he never declared God's word to his people. Whereas God had spoken directly to Samuel, God's word had to be mediated to Saul before he could hear it. Last week, we discussed the ways in which Jonathan tested the word God had spoken through Samuel by risking his life to see if God would be with them in battle. Jonathan didn't know. In both that passage and in the one we're considering today, Saul had called a priest to be with him and sought to discover the will of God through the use of these two mysterious objects that were part of the priestly garments of the high priest of Israel called the Urim and the Thummim. I don't know what they are. You can watch Hollywood movies. They all try to figure out what they were. I think in one Hollywood movie I saw they were a black stone and a amber-colored stone, and the one God chose glowed. I don't know how. The Bible doesn't tell us how they worked. But they were, they were used to seek God's will. And Saul, in both of these passages, used them for that purpose. But what I'm trying to explain is that prophets know God's word. Prophets know God's word. Whereas kings have to have God's word declared to them. Even the great King David, the author of many psalms that were later recognized to have been prophecies of the coming Messiah, even David consulted God through Urim and Thummim, just like Paul, if you read, uh, just like Saul, if you read the story. And David, too, had God's word declared to him, not directly, but through prophets. David even had prophets in his court, the prophet Nathan, for instance. So Saul had no direct access to God. He required mediation. He sought God through the prophet Samuel, and he sought God through the high priest and this Urim and Thummim. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 to 26, God was refusing to communicate with Saul through these means. So Saul was left to guess what God wanted. Now, there are better ways and worse ways of guessing. Last week, we saw that Jonathan's approach was deemed acceptable by God. Jonathan recalled the history of Israel and the stories that had been passed down to him. He presumed that those stories accurately reflected the nature and the will of God, and he stepped out in faith, believing that the same God who had spoken to Gideon, for instance, could be with him as well. Now, of course, the stories of Israel also demonstrated God's willingness to lead Israel into defeat in seasons of judgment. Jonathan could not be sure which of the stories would apply in his situation, so he was careful to put only himself at risk as he tested God's willingness to be with him before leading any of his men into battle. And as we saw last week, God honored Jonathan's carefulness and his humility and his faith with victory. Saul was engaged in a similar type of guesswork in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24 and following. After the victory God had given to Jonathan, Saul chose... For some reason, the Bible calls it a rash decision. I like that. It's a good, a good way of describing it. For some reason, Saul decided that Israel needed to depend on God even more for victory. 
with two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer, God had, de- had defeated a Philistine garrison. And with only 600 soldiers, that's all that was left to Saul, God had sent the Philistine armies of tens of thousands into dis- disarray. So God was with them. And Saul's gut told him something. It told him that stacking the odds against Israel even more would bring even greater honor to God. Let's give God even more to overcome and the glory will be greater. So he told the people that they could not eat until the Philistines were defeated. And these are multi-day skirmishes, right? Now, when Samuel first began to lead Israel, he had called them to fast as well. That's how Samuel's leadership began too. And in the wake of that fast, they had also been attacked by the Philistines and fought the Philistines hungry. And that story can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 11. And maybe that's what Saul was trying to recapture. Maybe he was trying to rewalk the footsteps of Samuel and, and recapture the beginnings of the golden age of Samuel's leadership. Hey, we're fighting the Philistines again. Maybe we should fast. We did it the last time. But Saul had misinterpreted the story. The fast in the days of Samuel was not a way to call God to provide the people with miraculous energy in battle. That's not why they were fasting. The scene has been described for us in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 6 in this way. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Under Samuel's leadership, the fast was one of repentance and of returning to God after a period of sinful rebellion. The battle with the Philistines was incidental. It occurred because the Philistines saw the gathering and thought it was a gathering for war, so they came against them. Now Jonathan, when he read the scriptures, he knew and understood the story of Gideon, and so he walked by saving faith. Saul also knew the story of Samuel, but he had not understood it. So he led Israel into folly. Now, of course, Jonathan knew nothing of Saul's vow. He wasn't there when he made it. He was busy defeating the Philistines. Nor could he have anticipated any military leader making any such promise in the middle of an extended military campaign. It didn't even cross Jonathan's mind that any fool would tell people not to eat for days while they fought, right? It didn't even... So when he came across some honey, he ate it. The other troops then informed Jonathan of his father's vow, and Jonathan publicly disagreed with his father. He was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. After the first rounds of victory, Saul again sought the will of God, probably again with the priests Urim and Thummim. But God still would not speak to Saul. Even after this victory, Saul could not get God to speak to him. And since Israel had just been victorious, Saul assumed that someone in his army must have sinned against God. I mean, look at I just won this battle. Can't be me. It's got to be somebody else. Of course, we know it was Saul who sinned against God in chapter 13. But it seems that Saul assumed that Israel's victory meant that all was forgiven. So he assumed the sin had to have been in somebody else. Even more, he also seems to have assumed that the sin must have been one of eating during the battle. He assumed somebody must have done that. And so he made another vow. Whoever is found to have eaten will be killed. <laughs> he didn't even know who it was. Now, it's, an ind- it's a curious vow. Since the text told us in 1 Samuel 14, 31 to 35, 
that all of the Israelites after the battle had eaten and they had broken the law of Moses by eating meat with its blood still in it, uncooked meat, which was against the law. And Saul tried to correct that by making an altar and quickly making them burn their meat before they continued eating it. So it's possible that this vow of Saul would have led to the death of all of those people who had eaten the raw meat. Maybe that's what he expected God to call out. Maybe he expected to execute a huge portion of his army. This guy's quite a leader. We can only guess because things didn't go that way in the end. Now, Saul's not wrong that vows are important in Israel. They are. Through Moses, God had said the following in Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not postpone fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you would incur guilt. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not incur guilt. Whatever your lips utter, you must diligently perform, just as you have freely vowed to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now, the Torah says nothing about the death penalty for breaking this. That's a little addition by Saul, right? His gut told him that, apparently. And even more, Jonathan did not make this vow. Saul made this vow. Deuteronomy said, if you refrain from vowing, you'll not incur guilt. So why would Jonathan be guilty? This wasn't his promise. Again, Saul knows the law, but he does not understand it. And so again, he leads his people into folly. So Saul inquired of the Lord again, asking, who ate? And interestingly, is this interesting to you? God answered. (laughs) Like he decided to answer this one. He hasn't spoken to Saul for days, but he answers this one. And God, through the Urim and the Thummim, pointed the finger at Jonathan. And since Saul had publicly vowed to kill the perpetrator, he prepared to execute Jonathan, his heir, his own son. But the people intervened. The people, too, knew the stories of Israel, and they could not understand Saul's interpretation of the events they were experiencing. Their response is found in 1 Samuel 14, verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great victory in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God today. So the people ransomed Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul relented. He always does what the people want anyway. We saw that last week. He did it again. Jonathan was spared, and the Israelites did not defeat the Philistines any further. Both sides call a ceasefire, and everybody goes home. It's an interesting story. And the question we've been asking as we've been reading through 1 Samuel together is this. How has this episode in the life of Israel informed our understanding of God? Well, first, when a people ask God to distance himself from their leadership, God has been known to oblige. Israel wanted a dynasty of rulers instead of a series of disconnected judges chosen by God. In asking for this, Israel had asked God to reduce his involvement in the choosing of their leaders. Why don't you just choose a family and leave the rest to us? In the case of Israel, God did just that. The consequences can be seen throughout the history of the monarchy in Israel, beginning with Saul. Second, rebellion against God's expressed commands creates a breach in our relationship with God. In the midst of that breach, God may be less willing to speak clearly to us or to respond to our requests. This is in part why the New Testament book of James has said, this is James chapter 5, verse 16, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. He doesn't say the prayer of anyone is powerful and effective. 
Third, when God is not speaking overtly, we're left to seek his will, as both Saul and Jonathan were, through the records we've received as scripture. For Saul, it would have been the five books of Moses, along with some version of the stories preserved in the books of Joshua and of Judges. For us, it's the 66 books of our Christian Bibles. God will speak to us, too, through these stories, but we are still tasked with reading them carefully and well. Jonathan read and interpreted them well. Saul read and interpreted them poorly. God was with Jonathan. God was not with Saul. Finally, God is invested in the truth and in bringing what is hidden to light. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. God revealed Jonathan's eating of the honey through Urim and Thummim. God revealed the foolishness of Saul's vow and the poverty of his interpretation of Scripture through Jonathan. And God revealed the folly of the monarchy departing from the teachings of Israel through the reprimand of the people and their refusal to obey Saul and his command to execute Jonathan. There are no secrets in the kingdom of God. It is always better to confess our faults and our sins than it is to conceal them. It's better to repent than to have to wait for God to expose us. If Jonathan had confessed his transgression immediately, some of what occurred could have been avoided. Perhaps the people might not even have been led by hunger to break the law of Moses by eating uncooked meat. When God speaks, all is made known. Concealing our sin and our foolishness is temporary, and it often adds to the evils we've already done. May the Lord add his blessing to the exploration of his word today. Amen.